Welcome to another Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Rob Gibson. Rob studied at the University of Dundee, where he headed the student wing of the SNP, before starting his career in education. He served as MSP for the Highlands and Islands between 2003 and 2016, and in his last term, he was convener of the Rural Affairs, Climate Change and Environment Committee. He's a passionate musician and a well-respected author, and he's written several books on subjects including Highland history, emigration and land reform. He was also a leading contributor to the Social Justice and Fairness Commission report. So Rob, thank you for joining us on Scotland's Choice. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, It's a great time to be talking about uh, my favourite subject. (laughs) Well, talking about your favourite subject, I know they're both independence and land reform. You've been a lifelong campaigner for uh, land reform and and improving tenants' rights. Could you explain a little about your background and how things have been in the past? Well, I think um, we don't want to delve right back into the Middle Ages, but um, certainly from when I was a student, um, I was reminded just yesterday uh, that uh, an event we were involved in in September 1972, a demonstration in Sky about a landlord. Uh, I wrote a little book about it called The Promised Land. So that will be 50 years ago. So I got involved particularly as a student, because we learned about the Land League and about the fight back by the Crofters at that time. But it took on from there when I was involved in the SNP in the 70s in helping to create the modern land reform policies. And uh, so after being a student and then a teacher uh, and a counsellor in the 80s and early 90s, I was able to take some of these things forward. But most of all, I suppose, it's important to realise that Scotland has the most concentrated pattern of land ownership in Europe and that that is totally abnormal and that it's a result of our history, particularly uh, related to the way in which the Reformation took place and all the lairds and landowners were right behind it because they were able to amass huge amounts of land from the old church And that started the process of making a few huge landowners in Scotland. I want to come to, you were talking about the the land mass and the population. I want to come to that in a wee second. But uh, what what you're talking about there is your experience and the the issues of the the past. Obviously, we've had things like feudal tenure, uh, Mm. turbulent times in the 1880s. I I remember myself, for example, my dad buying his house and it was under what was called a few superior um, right. So you couldn't actually make changes without getting permission from somebody who ultimately turned out not to exist anymore. But it, but it's part of that uh, system. Uh, you know, it really was quite complex in days gone by. Wasn't it was it? indeed, but it was a leftover from the time when uh, feudal power uh, was ad- 
was a pyramid with God at the top and the monarch immediately below them, and then the knights and the barons and right down to us peasants. Uh, but uh, by the 1960s, it was out of date and the governments just wouldn't finally abolish it. Uh, so the feudal payments were stopped in the 60s, but uh, it still had powers that stopped you running certain things like selling alcohol on your premises. Uh, you're in a position that uh, the feudal system was eventually uh, finished and ended by the Scottish Parliament because the British Parliament never had the time to do it or had the inclination either. But um, the important thing about taking it forward was basically that we when then put in a Titles and Conditions Act, which does allow communities and councils to lay particular conditions about land and housing. Rob, as we know, land use and ownership is a big topic in Scotland. It's a, you know, across communities, it's a kind of daily conversation. Could you perhaps explain where we are currently in Scotland? You were talking about the land use. and I think the figure is something like 83% of the population lives in about 2% of the land mass. But can you just expand on where we currently are? We are in a position that uh, there's been depopulation for centuries for all the push and pull effects uh, that there have been in the past. But uh, we've ended up with a situation where uh, the concentration on the industrial areas was a driver being coal and steel and iron. And we've ended up with a very imbalanced population and large areas of the country with very few people living in them. To take Highland Council area, more than half of the uh, data zones are losing people. Hmm. But the Inverness area as such is gaining huge numbers in terms of the total. Maybe there's exceptions like the Isle of Skye and so on, but there are large areas where people could be living and in fact should be, but that are not uh, populated. There also there's a big shift from west to east in the country as more people have gone towards Aberdeen, Dundee, Edinburgh, uh, the Lothians, compared to the west coast from Galloway right up to Mm -hmm. Shetland. So we have a huge imbalance in that sense too. And I think that uh, it's important for people to realise that that is not going to support the best use of our land from the point of view of our people. And actually repopulating land is one of the themes that's very much behind the land reform of today. Rob, in 2016, you helped uh, to introduce the Land Reform Scotland Act. Could you tell us about this and what it means for uh, for Scotland's people, its communities, uh, all the people that have been affected by the changes there? Well, it's important to see that it is a, an increment. Uh, it builds on the 2003 um, a example uh, of land reform, which brought in national parks, access, and uh, some community rights to buy for crofters. But it actually built on those. And although the SNP government came in in 2007 with a minority, it couldn't. It was still carrying through mm-hmm. many of the uh, pieces of legislation from 2003 for tenant farmers and for land reform. And uh, there was a commitment made that uh, in 2011 there would be a major review, which then took place. So a process of nearly 10 years between that review starting, it, reporting and then draft bills being created, and then the Act reached 
by March 2016. But it was only at the beginning of this year that the final piece of 40 pieces of secondary legislation were carried out, very important ones. Yeah. And it takes that time in government to do these things. So what's in it for people? Well, it's given far more uh, rights to buy. It's given far more security for tenant farmers. Mm. It's dealt with the question of setting up a land commission and above all about creating a land rights and responsibilities statement, which the parliament has to update in Scotland every five years. And what, what are the important changes, as you mentioned, as part of those uh, that list of benefits that we've seen from that is uh, the ability for communities to find new routes to purchase uh, their own land as well. That's an important aspect as well, isn't it? It's a very important part. And the, the, the aspect of that that's interesting is about neglected and abandoned land, but also getting land for community, for social and economic development. And it was that very last piece about economic development that was actually only passed at the beginning of this year. Because when the bill was going through, uh, it was suggested that much of the detail had not been dealt with uh, in the face of the bill. So it said that there had to be super affirmative processes to agree certain of these far-reaching points. That's why it took till February this year. Rob, I want to move on to uh, some of the changes that were made in the Scotland Act in 2016. As, as part of the Smith Commission, uh, you know, it was agreed that there'd be a transfer of both powers and assets. Um, but of course, there were some notable exceptions. Uh, what remained of those economic assets and, and the management were devolved to Scotland. Uh, what does this change mean for Scotland and how will independence impact on that? Well, First of all, let's look at the positive side. Uh, because it's now the Scottish uh, a, a Crown Estate, we're able to use the profits that are made yeah. to back up communities. But the Crown Estate also had a good reputation for giving long leases to willing farmers on its land. It behaved in a fashion which has led to the opportunities that independence will bring regarding uh, offshore wind and so on. Uh, the Scotland round of uh, applications and bids uh, for development will mean that that money which is gained from these will yes. come into Scotland's communities and that's a huge plus. I was on the Devolution Further Powers Committee that dealt with the Smith Commission and I was also the convener of uh, RACI, the Rural Affairs Climate Change and Environment. We were involved with the issues of the Crown Estate because I started the process back in 2011 of bringing in the Crown Estate representatives to tell us what they'd been doing, despite it not being our responsibility, which was great fun because I was asking them things like, why did the Dukes of Sutherland get uh, the right to the foreshore all around their estates? Yeah. So, well, that was before 1951 or whenever it was that the Crown Estate Act currently was set up. But um, in reality, uh, we were unhappy about the fact that there were properties in Scotland which were retained by the mm -hmm. Crown Estate in London particularly mm -hmm. the uh, big uh, complex uh, at Fort Canaird near Edinburgh. Yeah. But it was set up under an English partnership law. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the problem that we never finally solved. And indeed, 
the Gibraltar Holdings people that were the other partners yeah. uh, were actually uh, bought out. And I think Crown Estate in London has sold it on. Right. So they were actually taking our assets away from us when it could have been money in Scotland's pockets. Well, I remember one of the first jobs I had to do when I was elected in the 2015 Westminster Parliament was discuss this very issue uh, yeah. uh, in, uh, in the House of Commons with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg opposite uh, intervening on me during that and pointing out that the fact is you've mentioned that Fort Canaird, one of the biggest assets on the Crown Estate list wasn't included and that 60% of the value of the Crown Estate was actually sold before the transfer of powers, you know, just uh, eliminating Scotland's ability to, to, uh, to make use of that. So, so in some senses, the Westminster government can work very quickly, but only when it suits them, I think. No, absolutely. Yeah. But um, we also you know, have to see the way in which the Crown Estate in Scotland develops, but it's very friendly towards communities. Yeah. But it's still leasing assets like at moorings, like for, for yachts and for, for boats. It's leasing pieces of the foreshore. Now, we really ought to have a direct access without paying for that yeah. so that local communities control these things. So that would be a step further. So there's more work to be done on that. It, Rob, I want to come on to your work on the Social Justice and Fairness Commission. It looked extensively at the issue of land use and ownership in Scotland. What are some of the recommendations uh, post-independence that have been made? Well, we really wanted to build on the idea of uh, human rights at the heart of the whole uh, process, that social justice is something which you deserve. Now, uh, leading on from my own work and the work of Parliament in 2016, the International Covenant for Social, Economic and Cultural Rights, which is written into Scots law thanks to the 1998 Act, is not really uh, able to be used in the courts because uh, the European Convention on Human Rights is the uh, one which has created issues. Uh, and it can be uh, a balance, but uh, the social, economic and cultural rights would underpin uh, a social justice change. And that means that if people need land for building houses yeah. and so on, that it's part of their right, just as food should be part of their human rights. But the way that the Commission looked at it was that we want to emphasise placemaking so that communities actually have the right uh, within their area uh, to decide what that future should be. Now, this is an old idea and it's been tried uh, in various bits of the UK Parliament. Indeed, it stems way back in the 1970s as a way ahead, but it was always knocked back by the Tories. Well, in Scotland, we have the opportunity to actually do the job better. And as part of the, uh, the First Minister's uh, review of uh, uh, human rights, this I see, the, the International Convention of Social, Economic and Cultural Rights, is one of the four items that are intended to be taken into Scots law for yeah. use, to make them justiciable. And that is intended for this year, I believe, uh, in the Scots Parliament. But immediately it comes in, like the rights of the child, we can bet that London will try and call it in because yeah. it's the very thing that hits at the rights of these people in their own eyes of owning large amounts of land exactly. and not releasing any 
for social needs. Exactly. And the comparison you were referring to there was the uh, the UN Charter on Human Rights for Children, which went through unanimously at the Parliament, the Scottish Parliament, but was immediately subject to, this is the rights for children, it's immediately subject to challenge by the Westminster government. You're saying the same thing could happen here. But uh, you were talking about um, things like, you know, the vacant land and, you know, the ability to... to purchase for communities and so forth. It can make big difference things like council tax and a fairer system into the future as well. It, which brings me on to, you know, that fairer system and the equity brings me on to the, the situation at the moment. And, and currently about 50% of residents feel unable to impact decisions made about their local communities and feel disempowered about that. How do you feel we can improve this situation with better land reform and ownership post-independence? Well, there are different levels at which government works and uh, the planning system is one of the areas where people ought to have a direct access. Now, if I put it this way, back in the 70s, uh, back in the 70s, we thought that there should be uh, a dialogue between landowners and communities. In the 1990s, the uh, SNP set up a land commission uh, which suggested that community land councils would replace community councils and that communities would have a right to have access to the information about any changes that took place. But the point is that they have to have the the ability to take this on. And while we've seen a tremendous change in the way that some communities can do these things by buying their land, we haven't seen the process made easier for uh, communities at the moment to actually have that grasp. And Mm -hmm. so uh, the Land Commission that we set up has suggested quite clearly that there has to be a right to question any substantial change in the ownership of land so that a local community has a say. But they also need the skills to do that. So in the commission, we suggested that basically we had to have planning with a social just justice purpose. We had to prioritise pro-social development, integrate participatory planning for community empowerment, yeah. maximise and redistribute planning gain and community benefits. And the only ways to do these things is to put social housing at the heart yeah. of uh, that process, to drive forward the means to actually house our nation, but in so doing, to identify the right of communities to get land for those most basic purposes. We don't want to own the whole of the Cairngorms. We want to be able to actually have the land that we can build the houses on, that people can live in our communities. That is a specific right which we think can be underpinned by uh, human rights laws, but also that independence can release. Well, let's talk about something that's really close to uh, your passion for human rights. When you were an MSP, you were convener of the Rural Rural Affairs, Environment and Climate Change Committee. And all of those topics are very closely linked. Independence offers big opportunities for communities in these areas. Could you outline what those are in your view? Well, I really think that um, when you look at uh, how we have uh, developed in the last five years, the Scottish Land Commission has very much developed with the help of a lot of research that we we set it to do. And advice that it's given suggests the kinds of way forward that the Social Justice and Fairness Commission thought about, but in much greater detail. And I have a gripe at this moment. 
about individuals who set up to say, this is our programme for land reform. Look, this programme for land reform is in Parliament every year. <laughs> it's a, a Parliament, a body that was set up to advise Parliament and government, and that line of argument leads us to believe that um, communities will benefit when we see their rights enhanced and that, that therefore we need to have each level of government working in a fashion that uh, does so. And local government has got to be a lot more agile in the way in which it actually puts local communities first mm -hmm. so that developers come along and uh, they have a great plan and they've got a right to um, uh, appeal if they don't get the go-ahead. Well, communities ought to be able to do the same. Now, it's not a third party right of appeal. We've got to have the ability at the start mm -hmm. to determine how land should be used locally. And that's the kind of thing which uh, we were hoping to see develop in the RACI committee. I mean, housing wasn't a part of that. We were really dealing with, uh, because the housing proposals, for, for example, for a rural housing fund mm -hmm. were quite separate from our remit. Uh, if interesting, uh, and something that we commented upon in our reports. But um, we were looking at how tenant farming housing is appalling, mm -hmm. often below tolerable standard. And it's only by 2027 we're going to see that finally ended. Mm -hmm. It's taken that long, centuries, and indeed 30 years in this parliament to be able to actually make that change. From the point of view uh, of uh, communities, yeah. the absolute right to buy uh, is something which they ought to have, and that was enshrined in the way that we set these laws up. So if people are making other proposals for land reform, let them think. The processes have actually been working, and the land commissions work as professionals, and taking European and worldwide examples is informing the Scottish Government how to do these things and indeed commitments to land reform bills under devolution coming up in the next year or two hopefully with independence much stronger. Rob um, your passion uh, for the opportunities and for independence and land reform are self-evident but I know you've written extensively on the subject uh, so you're well researched on this. What would you say are the three big steps uh, that an independent Scotland needs to make? Well, can I presage it by saying that there are three steps that we need to take in order to do anything. You have to remember what has happened. You have to revision what that is. And you have to then reclaim mm -hmm. the land to do these things with. That was my motto for my book, Reclaiming Our Land. But um, it comes from uh, educational stuff from uh, 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 liberation theology in South America and things like that. Now, the Scottish government, it, it, its biggest steps have got to make sure that that land uh, which we need for housing and for placemaking is an absolute priority because on that you build the ability of people to take on work and jobs. If they don't have a home, they can't do so. We can see that at the moment quite simply by people trying to work in places like Skye or even the centre of Edinburgh. They can't rent properties. There are none to rent, to rent for those purposes. So a fundamental thing that has to happen, we prepare for it now, 
that independence can release that. The second thing is we probably have to deal with the issue about the amount of land that people have, but that's less of a, uh, of a target. We need to access the land that people need and therefore use these international covenants yeah. to ensure that that happens. And thirdly, basically putting people in charge of their mm. local area. That is the work we're embarked upon. And I believe with independence, it's the only way that you can build independent thought. If people control their local decisions, they're going to wish to control their national ones. Well, Rob, it's been fascinating listening to your uh, points of view on that. It's certainly a big subject I know we'll have to return to time and time again. And so we should, uh, that passion for communities, for uh, reform and as I've said a few times for independence, is very clear uh, from you. Rob Gibson, thank you very much for joining me on the Scotland's Choice podcast. You're very welcome, and I hope to meet you again. Well, there we have it. Scotland has an imbalanced population where 83% of the population live in just 2% of the land, which is why decisions made for instead of in Scotland will always fail to understand how Scotland works. The Land Reform Scotland Act made in Scotland has strengthened the rights of people across the board, giving communities new rights to buy land for sustainable development. Evidence shows that when communities are given more power over the decisions being made locally, they flourish and residents become more engaged and involved. Independence would bring more of this to Scotland and in turn to our communities. My thanks to Rob for taking part and to you for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.